Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, November 17th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, you know, you've heard of Cher. You've heard of Adele. You've heard of the uh, the celebrities, the superstars who go solely by a first name, and in intellectual circles, we have one of our own. He does have a last name. His last name is Levin, but his first name is Yuval. And generally speaking, when people now make reference to the ideas, thoughts, writings, and leadership of our guest, they just say, well, you know, Yuval says, or that's, that's like Yuval's piece. So here he is, Yuval Levin. Hi, Yuval. Hello, John. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, well, John doesn't just doesn't carry the same <laughs> one name grandiosity that Yuval has now come. There's to a represent. few more Johns than Yuval's. I just have to compete with that one crazy Israeli historian or whatever he is. Harari, Hariri, Harari, yeah. Sapiens, the Sapiens guy. Right. All right. Well, you are our you are our Sapiens today. <laughs> Uh, you uh, have written in the last year, you've written two major pieces on on COVID um, for commentary, a vision of the plague uh, published in May of 2020, and then a piece we published, I think, in September about uh, what we got right uh, in, in, in the war on COVID. Uh, I wanted to highlight the fact that uh, a landmark happened today, this morning. Uh, in United States vaccination numbers. Um, and another landmark will happen probably tomorrow or Friday, okay? Uh, as of this morning, among Americans 18 and up, 71% are fully vaccinated. Among Americans 12 and up, 69% are vaccinated. So I thought when we had you on this morning, we would actually hit 70% in that 12 and up number, but so we're a day or two off. Um, last year, the idea that was being retailed around was that if we could just get 70% of Americans vaccinated, we would achieve herd immunity and we would be out of COVID. We have now achieved 70% vaccination of all Americans eligible for the vaccine until last week when the vaccine became uh, available to uh, kids 5 to 11. And I hear crickets. And I, I see in the New York Times' article on vaccinations uh, this slight change in the language. I don't know when they did it that says that most experts say that 90% of Americans will need to be fully vaccinated before we achieve herd immunity. We saw earlier in the year that Anthony Fauci said, I've been trying to push up the number that that will represent herd immunity in my talking points from 70 to 80%. Now, apparently, without any large public commentary on the matter, uh, we are now told that 90% is necessary to achieve herd immunity. And it just seems to me that we are this game of, of relentlessly upping the requirements for us to move on to the next period in which we are living with COVID rather than warring against COVID uh, just keeps getting pushed further and further into the future. What do you make of it? 
Could I just add one thing to that? Oh yeah. There was a story in the in the Los Angeles Times last week um, about how the CDC um, is talking about shifting away from the concept of herd immunity altogether uh, in, in when they're talking about COVID policy because they've missed the mark or broadcast the wrong uh, deadline, the, the, the wrong goal. Sometimes. I was just about to say that that um, public health messaging and Dr. Fauci is out there today talking about this, that we've blown right past herd immunity. Herd immunity is is dead and gone, as it should have been when we started talking about breakthrough infections. By definition, herd immunity involves reduced to negligible spread. And we're talking about spreading among people who are so-called immunized. You're no longer talking about herd immunity. You're talking about endemic levels. And that's what Dr. Anthony Fauci is talking about today, reaching the point of uh, this pandemic becoming endemic, which is, you know, a valuable thing, but public health messaging has not addressed the change. They just sort of assume that you you can accept the fact that we've blown right past this thing that we were talking about for 18 months and just understand, you know, that, that we've moved past it without, you know, doing the groundwork of getting people engaged in the idea that we're no longer talking about defeating this virus, but living with it. You know, there, there's a there's a basic concept that has to come along with thinking about this as being endemic, which is anything we're doing now needs to be something we're willing to do forever. And we're clearly doing things now that we're not going to want to or need to do forever. Uh, there's still a mask mandate in Washington where I am. Uh, apparently it's going away Monday. I'll believe it when I see it, but there's no reason for it at this point. And we, if we are getting to a point where we're talking about endemic levels, then we have to think about what are we willing to do from now on to, to, to live with this virus? You know, 70% vaccination rates is what you have with the childhood vaccines that we think of as universal. The MMR vaccine, which is the gold standard for universal childhood vaccination, usually you get about 75% vaccination rates. And we're not, and the, the issue here isn't even just vaccination. We now have two very effective therapeutics that are very close to FDA approval. And I mean, very effective. These are the two best antiviral drugs that there have ever been. And they're both coming out at the same time. Both of them brought deaths down to zero in large studies of vulnerable populations. So you have both a vaccine that's very widely used and a therapeutic that if you test positive and have symptoms, you take this drug twice a day for five days and you're not going to have serious symptoms and you won't die. And that's a disease we can live with. And we've just got to get to a place where we are living with it rather than treating it as an ongoing emergency. So um, I was struck today as we were here uh, on our group chat. Um, by a piece by our former colleague, Max Boot, uh, of course, a, uh, a never Trumper who now writes exclusively for the Washington Post, panicked by the uh, evidence of severe democratic decline in American popularity and what this portends for 2022 and potentially 2024, um, which we can also talk about later. What, 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 what struck me was that Max went to the heart of the matter, which is he basically says, in order to save our democracy from Trump, Biden needs to do better. In order for Biden to do better, Americans need to feel better about things. In order for that to happen, Biden needs victories. In order for Biden to have victories, he has to declare victory over COVID. It's time for him to declare victory over COVID to save us 
and save American democracy from Trump. So that's my question about democratic neurosis and anxiety about the election. At what point are they going to take Max's creed de cur and take it on as their political necessity? Because he's right. And, and he's not only he's right that uh, the weirdness here is that Biden understood in the spring that it would be great help to him to declare an end to COVID. Then the Delta variant came and all the finger waggers and tisk tiskers and everybody else said, oh, you did it too soon. You did a mission accomplished moment. You, you, you declared victory against the virus too soon, which is, I believe, not actually true, given the fact that the overwhelming number of deaths and even you know injurious experiences with COVID are among people who have chosen deliberately not to get vaccinated and have therefore made the moral decision to face the risk that all the rest of us who have been vaccinated decided we were going to face by, by inoculating ourselves against the threat. They have chosen not to inoculate themselves What's happened's happened that does not actually affect the larger population of us. Almost everybody I know who has gotten a breakthrough infection, and I know a bunch of people who have, have very mild cases that are milder than a, than a, than a seasonal flu, which is exactly what we were told would happen if you got vaccinated. And now, if you actually get COVID, as of January, as you mentioned, it's almost it's almost certain that by January, you'll, there'll be a pill that you take that ends the threat of COVID, even as a sort of lingering, unpleasant physical experience. Okay, here's and a theory. There, and the, what? Here's a theory. <clears throat> the The Democratic Party is as hostage to the 1619 Project idea of critical race theory in the United States as being this this terrible force in history that they just insert throat clearing asides about, you know, American, uh, 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 you know, atrocities into utterly unrelated topics. And in the same way that the public health apparatus has refused to allow the Biden administration to get out of this pandemic, just as in back in September, for example, we were talking about the phrase, the pandemic of the unvaccinated, which is exactly what you were saying, John, that this is now a choice on your part to expose yourself to very high risk from COVID. Public health apparatus went after that phrase, said it was in, it, it was uh, insufficiently observant of breakthrough infections. It was callous to people who had uh, you know, immunocompromised issues, for example, and made them more vulnerable to COVID. It generally was a bad public health messaging and it had to be done away with, but it was great political messaging just in the same way that the New York Times style approach to political history won't allow Democrats to get out of this trap they've set for themselves in which they're continually lecturing Americans about how terrible the country is. The public health apparatus won't let the Biden administration move on from the pandemic. This is where the the politics of masking and the recent off-year election come into play, because I think a lot of uh, politicians understand that it wasn't just critical race theory in some of these races, it was the masking and the school shutdowns. And the masking has continued and will continue. And to what you've all said earlier, our our mayor did just you know grandly announce yesterday, yes, the mask mandate will now become voluntary. We're not going to tell people what to do anymore. It was it, it, the grandiosity of her of her, you know, giving us permission to to make our own health risk was kind of galling to some of us. But but in Montgomery County, 
in Maryland, they had rescinded the mask mandate. Now they're bringing it back in the People's Republic of Tacoma Park, a very liberal neighborhood in Montgomery County. They never let the mask mandate go. And but the politics of it is what's clear. Mayor Bowser just recently announced that she's running for another term as mayor. The mask mandate's very unpopular among the businesses that she will need to donate to her campaign for mayor. And it's very unpopular among, you know, the vaccinated high schoolers and, and college students in the area. But that the, the political masking thing has now become so uh, unavoidable for Democrats, I think, that they have to start making these claims. So I, I agree with you, Noah, but I think that's starting to fracture because of what we saw with some of these elections. I, I so think that Yuval, story of yeah. that story of political masking really shows you how far this has gone from any public health consideration because the mayor is under pressure from some people in the city to keep masking forever. She's under pressure now from a lot of businesses in an organized way to end the mask mandate. And the question isn't, do we need this thing? It's just which constituency is going to be able to exercise its power over the mayor. But I also think there is, there's, a, there's a bit of political psychology here that we should pay attention to, which is the sense that admitting now that we're winning would, would feel to a lot of people like giving in to the people who always said we shouldn't take COVID too seriously. And there's just not going to be a point where you can say it was serious. We needed to do that stuff, but now we need to do this. There's a similar logic going on with the way the White House thinks about inflation, as if saying now that we have evidence that there's an inflation problem and we have to think about it would be like admitting that all the inflation hawks that they've called idiots for 20 years were right 20 years ago, which is just not how this works. But it makes it impossible for them to live in the real world and respond to changing circumstances. And so we end up stuck with this nonsense. But let's go back to Max's theory, because uh, let's let's take as axiomatic that uh, political parties or people, you know, don't commit suicide so easily. And they don't they, they don't tend in the long run to do things that are wildly injurious to themselves when they are unnecessary. And uh, the White House is, and the Democrats are staring down the barrel of the worst data that any party has ever seen going into a midterm election, which, by the way, is a little striking if you think about it. Like the data, way worse for the, for the party uh, in power than, say, the data were in 2009 when we were in the depths of a year. We were still a year out of the, you know, the Great Recession or or uh, 1994, when uh, a minority president, Bill Clinton, who had gotten 43% of the vote, was lurching very far to the left and wasn't, you know, and, and uh, all, all indications then in both those years were that things were going unfavorably for the Democrats. They didn't want to believe it. They didn't want to pay attention to it. And then they, they got their hats handed to them. Now the numbers are just undeniable. These are the worst numbers, generic numbers and issue numbers for a party since these data were being collected in 1980. No one's ever seen bad news like this. And they have 300 odd days to try to get this runaway train, which is going to smash them against the shoals or, you know, collapse like the train in Buster Keaton's The General into the river. They actually have 300 days to get things back on track in some fashion. And this is an unforced error on their part. The pandemic isn't over, but it has moved into the, into the, uh, into the uh, endemic phase. The vaccination campaign has been wildly successful. The indications are 
that the efforts to vaccinate kids are going to be very successful and that the booster shot campaign is going to be successful. And they cannot move off this iceberg. You know, they're, they're both on the Titanic and on the iceberg. Like the iceberg is immovable, which is the opinion, and the Titanic is heading for the iceberg. They're the captain and the seagull, the captain of the Titanic and the seagull sitting on the Titanic. But they have to they have to give up a few things if they're going to try to get the benefit of uh, switching tactics here. Um, in keeping with what you've all said about the political psychology, uh, one thing they're going to have to give up on is demonizing right leaning uh, Americans who haven't who have opted not to get the, the shot. Um, right, because they can no longer be the greatest uh, problem we face if 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 the idea is to declare that the problem we face isn't that great anymore. Uh, they're going to have to give up demonizing um, uh, Republican governors if they're now going to get on the same page as them. And they're going to have to give up some of the controls that they've been enjoying uh, in terms of policy. Well, they, they did to a certain degree, right? I mean, they haven't given up on demonizing Republicans, Republican governors and vaccine, vaccine holdouts. But we have moved on from the idea that the only obstacle between you and normalcy is Republican vaccine holdouts, right? Now it's children, children under the age of five. And I was joking on our text thread the other day, it'll be, you know, next month, it'll be a half a dozen booster shots. It'll be vaccinating all the deer. Who knows? The, the goalposts will move. But right now it's moved away from you know, vaccine holdouts as being the obstacle between you and normalcy because it was never the case. Uh, not really, uh, because in Max's poot, M- Max's poot, Max <laughs> boots piece. Wow. In which he uh, says that Biden needs to declare uh, the pandemic over. He says, look, uh, it's not Biden's fault. We all know that th- that the real fault for the ongoing pandemic is the is re- the Republicans who won't get vaccinated. But we have to we have to move on nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, that's but maybe oddly, that's true. It's also a, just a piety, yeah, th- more throat clearing. They have to say, oh, Republicans will win because of redistricting. Ah, child care will save us from inflation. Ah, you know, Republican holdouts from vaccination. That's the sort of thing you just again, say to demonstrate your fealty to the movement. The, the risk they have here is that they're setting Republicans up for the easiest possible election argument in a year when they're already in trouble. And the and the argument is what stands between you and normalcy is is the Democrats. And that is just a fact at this point in a lot of places that was implicit in what happened in Virginia. It could easily be explicit at this point and and rightly so. And so Republicans don't even have to offer an alternative public policy agenda for how to lower costs of living to or anything else to simply point out that there's no longer any reason to be doing these things. And of course, in a lot of red America, you're not doing these things anymore. Republicans are going to win there anyway. In the purple places where this could matter, a lot of those are still places where people feel like, why are my kids wearing a mask playing soccer? That's insane. And it is insane. Well, that's why I go back to the parties don't commit suicide thing. Or am I missing a beat? Because as Noah would say, sure they do. I mean, the 16, the logic of the 1619 Project Democratic Liberal thesis um, is suicidal. And we just saw that the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee intends to run and recommend to people that they run on the idea that Americans are racist. I mean, you do commit suicide. 
you do commit suicide if you're a member of a death cult. Well, look, we know there are these moments when you can watch a politician, maybe not, you know, like not not commit suicide, but shoot, but shoot himself and, you know, shoot himself in the face while he's cleaning his gun. Right. That's McAuliffe saying parents shouldn't shouldn't, uh, you know, have any effect on what their kids learn in schools. And it was uh, Walter Mondale in 1984 saying, I will raise your taxes. Like as you were watching it, you were like. Don't clean that guy. Keep your hand away from the trigger. You know, it's like the second that it came out of their mouths, you knew something really colossally bad had happened, right? So there's that kind of just self, you know, self-inflicted wound that is from which you cannot recover. And then there is this fact, which is that the pandemic is over and they won't say it's over. Now, I know you look at the numbers, it says cases are going up. On the other hand, you look at the numbers and it says deaths are going down while cases are going up. That is the end of the pandemic as a threat. If cases go up, people are getting COVID as a matter of course and not dying from it. Then you have an endemic disease for which in eight weeks there is going to be a treatment. You will be able to go to the pharmacy and get a pill when you get tested positive for COVID that will cure you of COVID. But they're not just giving up. They're not by saying the pandemic's over, let's move on. They have to, they're not just giving up the kind of moral high ground they feel they've been standing on this whole time. They're giving up real power. They're giving up emergency powers, particularly at the local level that they have really enjoyed wielding with zero accountability. And that's why I think those off-year elections were the beginning of accountability from the public side. But if you think about the the kind of power that a, that a mayor that that has the teachers union support has had over schooling in some of these blue areas, it's vast. And, you know, our you know, the mayor in D.C. just gave herself more, you know, extended her emergency powers through the end of the year with no justification. And no one challenged her about that. So they are actually giving up real power to, to, to make decisions that used to be sclerotic and slow and difficult and had to involve debate and discussion. They can do a lot still at the local level. And I think a lot of those local officials aren't eager to give up those powers. But if the president of the United States, who apparently overruled his FDA this week, I mean, if you read between the lines, the FDA was not ready to say that every adult should get a booster shot. And suddenly every adult is going to be able to get a booster shot. Uh, that I don't know whether we're going to get inside reporting that says the FDA committee was nervous about, but we didn't have enough information or something. And the white house said, no, no, we're going to do it. Right. So, which is the way it should be. Right. I mean, the, these decisions ultimately are, there is no epidemiological science in the way that people imagine fan, you know in fantasy terms that there is and these are political decisions and all things being equal the ri- the reward outweighs the risk and that is a decision fu- fundamentally that the president should make because he's the one who's going to face the consequences from the electorate if the decision is wrong or if the th- things go on right so apparently he's willing to do that what the public health apparatus, as defined by Dr. Anthony Fauci, essentially really want to do is to redefine this, the sort of quasi legal status around fully vaccinated to include booster shots. Um, that's when you're, you're going to see if you're if you think you've seen a revolt of the public against the covid status quo now, I just wait until, until you have to your that card in your wallet has to be unlaminated so that you can you know revise it just to walk into the local bodega. 
Can I just say, I'm not sure I agree with you about that once again, because I do think that if you are fully vaccinated, the idea that it's a good idea six months later, just get it, you know, just, just go back and get the same shot. Just to, it's going to, you know, it's about, you've already crossed the Rubicon. If you were hesitant, you already crossed the Rubicon, got yourself double vaccinated. The third shot is nothing. I really don't think people are going to go. That's, that's it. That's too much. I had the two shots and I'm done. They'll be, it's a fine, whatever. And the, obviously those numbers are going to be much lower. They're going to end up being much lower than, than 80% or 90%, whatever it comes to in the, in the end. I'm just saying, like, as a practical political matter, they're staring down the barrel of a gun. They screwed up Afghanistan. They got a problem with inflation. They've got this bill that they're not probably going to get passed. And they've got COVID as this giant shadow over them. And they've got generic numbers 10 points against them. And they're not going to make any changes in areas where they actually ought to be making changes. Because I think that in, in the moment we're in where things are not only polarized, but the parties live in echo chambers, the parties just do commit suicide. They both commit suicide. They do incredibly politically stupid things all the time because they live in circumstances where they don't recognize how stupid it is. There are some situations, genuinely purple states like Virginia, where both parties actually do recognize that. I mean, if you step back from the Virginia governor's race, both parties tried to nominate somebody who could run saying, I'm just a level headed, sensible guy and the other guy's crazy. And they both basically did run that way. And and, you know, the, the Virginia Republican Party changed how it selects the gubernatorial nominees so that it wouldn't have a Trumpist. That's what a, a sensible party does in a place like that. But in a lot of the country, and I think at this point also in our national politics, the parties are not getting these signals in the way that you would expect. And they both do suicidal things all the time. So we have this piece by Tom Edsel, the New York Times. I only use this. I, first of all, he is a really great. I mean, we disagree with him uh, ideologically, most of us. But I mean, this is a sensationally good once a week column where he you know, aggregates a lot of data and a lot of academic information. And this is really just a political piece, but it is the, you know, uh, pencil from Monsters, Inc. saying now is the time to panic. You know, this is all the flashing signals are the Democratic Party is about to be destroyed. That is basically the right. The, the, the theme of the article, uh, every sensible Democratic person who isn't the sort of person who says, no, no, no. People just don't understand that there really isn't inflation or something like that. You know, some weird efforts to argue people against the fact that their gas is more expensive than it used to be. No, it isn't really. <laughs> no, your no, your grocery bill isn't up twenty percent. You know, that stuff. So don't take them, but take sort of everybody else's going. Oh my god! 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 What? Oh geez, what are we gonna do? And as I just say, like. There are a couple of arrows in the Biden administration's quiver. They got this arrow in the quiver and they're not claiming a victory that they could claim. I mean, maybe they maybe they'll do it in a month or something like that. And there's still time again. It's 320 days or something. 330 days till the next election. Or, but, I keep um, saying this and everybody disagrees with me. But you got to use one of those arrows to shoot someone. You got to go after one of your own. Someone has to go under the bus for real. Public health apparatus under the bus. The, the critical race theory activist under the bus. Somebody make an example of these people who are keeping you hostage. You, Yuval, do you agree with that? Do you think that it requires a villain? I think it, it 
I, I think that the Biden administration has an easier path than that. This is their first year. They could do the most obvious thing that every new president does, which is say, the problems you're facing are things left over from my predecessor, and, I'm, and I've got a plan for fixing them. And amazingly, they're not doing that because they need to deny that there is inflation. They can't say, we, we arrived here with this problem, which, by the way, Barack Obama was saying like seven years into his presidency, and it was pretty effective. And Joe Biden has not really done that, has not said he, he's instead opted to deny that there are problems over and over and to deny himself the, the ability to say we're we've got a plan here. We're succeeding here. Just declare victory over COVID, as you say. I, I do think that the kind of bubble they live in makes it very difficult for them to see how they could get away with that kind of move, even without actually throwing part of their base under the bus just disagreeing with some part of it, just saying, no, actually, things are much better on COVID than they were six months ago. And so we can just start to go back to normal now. Seems like an unthinkable thing to a lot of people around this president. And look, Joe Biden himself, you would think, would have the instincts of a moderate who would be inclined to do this. But honestly, other than the Afghanistan withdrawal, it's very hard to attribute anything to Joe Biden himself here. I think he's in a place where he's unable to take sides in debates within his party and is incredibly weak in a moment where he could really make a difference. Well, that's what I mean, though. I, I mean, the sister soldier moment to go back to that, you know, to throw somebody under the bus, for example, was, you know, to jettison someone who didn't really have a whole lot of purchase, honestly, politically. But he wasn't going after sister soldier. He was going after Jesse Jackson. It was an attack on Jesse Jackson, who was sitting right next to him, who was looking, you know, very, very dejected by his, you know, rejection mm -hmm. by the president right there. But that's what yeah. the message was. It was to say, I disagree with you. And in, in this case, it would be, you know, uh, 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 Nicole Hannah Jackson. What's her name? Hannah, Hannah Nicole Jackson. Hannah Nicole Hannah Jones. Nicole Hannah Jones. Thank you. I'm sorry. And Nicole Hannah Jones, you know, is wrong here in, in many different ways. And that's to say, I disagree with The New York Times. By throwing this individual under the bus, who's, by the way, somebody who's probably on borrowed time over there anyway. Uh, that's, you know, that's the sort of thing that you could engineer this reversal of fortunes by just very gently nudging this institution that you can't get rid of by going after somebody who's who's a liability. But just on, can, a, yeah, I just real quick on COVID, though, that's harder to do because they're dealing with fear. And I think they're dealing with a fear that they themselves experience. So I think one of the reasons we're not seeing an end to COVID is they're going to wait through the holidays. They're worried that there might be spikes. And if they come out too soon and say, ah, oh, this is over, take your masks off like they did over the summer, then they're going to it's going to be the backlash for the people who want to remain fearful will be fierce. OK, let me give you let me just give you a thought experiment and then I got to do an ad. But let, let me just give you this thought experiment. What goes on that that continues to fill people with fear? Uh, or elites, Democratic elites, whatever. New York Times homepage, right above the fold in, on your computer, whatever you want to call that, are the daily case rates, right? And for the last six weeks, the daily case rates have been rising. Also there, daily death rates. Daily death rates have been falling, right? Today, cases are up 14% over two weeks ago. Deaths are down 14% over two weeks ago. Biden administration calls in Dean Baquette and um, whoever the AP, uh, Busby, uh, Sally Busby, the new editor of the Washington Post, and whoever is at the AP, and they, they sit them down at, a, at an off-the-record or private meeting. 
And uh, they run through all this stuff saying, look, there's a wildly increased numbers of uh, tests being taken because people are flying more and they're doing this and they're doing that. So there are all these, all these tests. And so the positive cases are up. But actually, the caseload is a terrible metric. It's a terrible metric. It's not defining anything because the issue now is if you test positive, but you have been vaccinated, you are at almost no risk uh, either of dying or really of getting very sick. But of course, you might be part of the positive test numbers and blah, 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 blah. How about for the sanity of your readership and so we can move on and do something with could you just stop reporting the daily case numbers? I just, we just, it's not a helpful metric here. We're going to have this. Here's this slideshow. Here's this PowerPoint that shows it's not a good metric. Here's that. Here's the other thing. That is not to say you're coming out and you're declaring victory right away. You are saying we're moving into a different period. The kinds of things that you started reporting on when this was going on in April, May, or June, and incidentally, not that you would say aloud when you were trying to destroy Trump, um, we're, we're in a different place now. This is not a helpful metric either for you, for your readers, for us, for America, for the economy, for our future, or anything like that. Just do the death toll. Because if you just do the death toll, what you'll see is the numbers are going down. That's actually what's important. Hospitalizations and deaths, that's what's important. Those are both going down. They're going down everywhere. But, but that's do the that kind of thing as a thought experiment that you could imagine being done because they have meetings like that all you have no idea how many meetings they have to have background discussions over what it is that blah, 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 blah. I'm not saying that they would do it as pressure I'm saying as a thought experiment if you know that the press the mainstream media is desperate to save the Biden administration and in the max boot way save democracy from the return of Trump and the and the advancement of the Republicans couldn't they use some of their authority and power to edge the conversation, to nudge the conversation in a direction that will then over time allow them to claim victory? But to do that would be to go to war with their own public health apparatus. Uh, Anthony Fauci explicitly said a few weeks ago, there's this idea out there that since a lot of people are only getting breakthrough infections and they're just getting sick and not getting seriously sick, that that's okay. It's not okay, he said. This he said the exact opposite thing, John. So they would have a, they would have, have a hell of a hard time getting sick. Right. But that's a stronger yeah. argument for the president saying, "Look, I get it, but I have to think about more than these numbers. I have to think about the country, and it's just obvious that we are not in the place we were a few months ago." That would be a very popular message, not only with uh, w with voters on the right and. It's an opportunity. The fact that 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 Tony Fauci would react that way should be seen by the White House as an opportunity to show some strength. It's just not how they think. It's also a conversation that Biden can have with Fauci. Fauci works for Biden. I mean, let's let's be real here. Yuval, you were sort of Fauci is a demigod, John. He's I, now achieved I demigod aware, status. But I mean, you. <laughs> Yuval, you worked with Fauci, I think. I mean, yes, you worked in true. the sort of public health world. It was granted it was 18 years ago or something like that. Yep. Not that I want to age you because you are, of course, 12 years old. So I don't even want to get to that. It's embarrassing for me. This is like our, our roasty, uh, Mayor Soloveitchik, who's the subject That's of the commentary. Exactly my age. Yeah, the two of you can drop dead is what I'm saying. <laughs> 
with your incredible accomplishments at the age of 44, whatever the hell it is. Anyway, not that I want to get off on a tangent because I'm feeling self-pitying that I'm now in my seventh decade, but you work with Fauci. Fauci works for the executive branch of the United States. Biden can bring Fauci into his office and say, what do you think of X, Y, and Z here? Like, give me a hand. Like, here's what I, now, first of all, Biden may not have a brain anymore. We don't even know. We don't know who Biden is. You know, he's a sock puppet with an ice cream cone in his mouth for all we know. But again, as a thought experiment, it's not as though Biden can't say, look, you've had 18 months in this. We've developed, we did warp speed. We have the drugs coming. We have followed these rules. The country is in a bad way, is in a bad emotional state. And we need to rally the troops, rally the emotions, get the natural exuberance of the American people to work for itself, get us out of this. I need your cooperation. You are not helping. Yeah, absolutely. Is I mean, as you said, the, the, the president has now a couple of times overruled FDA here. It, it happened first with the boosters uh, originally, where the, the recommendation from the FDA in public was that it should only go to people at high risk above age 65. And the White House said, no, everybody over 65, it has to be simple. And then they did it again and now allowing it for everyone uh, over 18 or over 12 or whatever it is. And, and look, there's also an, an analogy here to Afghanistan, where most of the generals who advised the president did not agree with his desired course of action. But he's the president. And, you know, I don't agree with it either, but he's, he was the one elected president. And he said to them, I hear you. I take your advice, but this is what I want to do. That is absolutely appropriate to do in public health as well. These people advise the political leadership and, and elected officials have to look at a broader range of issues than what the public health folks have to look at. But, you know, the, the, the administration treats that public health world as one of its constituencies rather than as a set of advisors. And the Democrats are in a place where the only thing they say to all of their constituencies is yes, they're not managing a coalition. I mean, look at the bill they're trying to pass in the Senate. That's a way of listening to a bunch of people who all want different things and saying yes. It's a crazy way to run a coalition and to run a government, but it is where they are. I mean, I, I think that's just how they think about the place they're at as a, as a Democratic coalition. Okay, I want to I want to move on to that because that is very, very important and very interesting. But first, I want to talk to you about our friend David Bonson at the Bonson Group and his new book. Uh, There's no free lunch, 250 economic truths. Um, David's book is structured as a kind of uh, if you if you know these things, daily devotional, where there's a page devoted to uh, one topic um, ballasted and supported by, by, by quotations from great philosophers, great economists, great thinkers, um, all of which are a, an attempt to merge the ideas of free enterprise, the pursuit of liberty, and the practice of faith and make it clear how they are all related and how they connect to each other in a relatively seamless garment. And uh, this book is uh, inspiring. It's enlightening. It would make a great stocking stuffer for people who either feel these things but don't really understand them all that well or want to have arguments and quotes and things at the ready to make the arguments that they want to make with people who might feel differently about 
where we're going, how our man, the management of our liberty, our economic liberty, our personal liberty, and our and the liberty that allows us the free practice of our faith, where those are and where those are going. So that's two. That's there's no free lunch. Two hundred and fifty economic truths by David Bonson. That's spelled B A H N S E N. Go to Amazon. Go to Barnes and Noble. Buy the hardcover. Download the Kindle. Whatever you want to do. Uh, and that is uh, the work produced by our friend who runs the Bonson Group, that multi-billion dollar financial management and services company that is the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of his industry. All right, let's talk about this. Let's only say, actually, let's not. Let, let's, go, let's go deeper and, and move away from mere politics and talk about uh, the piece that you published on the dispatch earlier this week, uh, which I commend to everybody, just search Yuval Levin and dispatch, and you can find it, um, in which you take data from a study done by colleagues of yours at the American Enterprise Institute on sort of the general emotional health, shall we say, of the American family and of the American polis. And you pull something out that was both very enlightening and unbelievably depressing, which is kind of your, that's your go-to. It's like, you know, how Adele, remember Adele, one name legend, sort of, you know, sing songs that just make you cry, even though you don't know. So you've all, you make people cry sometimes. So here, please explain what it was that you found in this data that you wrote about that made me cry. Well, you know, in a sense, what the, what the data suggests, and this is a picture that's been emerging in social science now for a long time, but I think this, this report helps you put a finger on it, is that we should, we should rethink what we mean by social breakdown, where for a long time, what we have meant is that people jump into things too fast, live their lives out of control, um, you know, these, this looks like teen pregnancy and teen sex. It looks like drug use. It looks like a failure to build families, a kind of disorder that looks like too much energy and not enough structure. And over the last really 20 years now, we've come to see, at least alongside that set of problems, a very different sort of social disorder where instead of doing too much, people are doing too little, uh, young people in particular uh, not only are not getting married and having children, but see themselves as sitting on the sidelines of their own social lives. And in a funny way, this first emerges as good news. So the divorce rate is lower. Teen pregnancy is much lower than it was. The abortion rate is lower. These seem like good things, and they are good things. But th they're a function of the fact that people are just doing less in general. The divorce rate is lower because the marriage rate is much lower. Um, and the, the abortion rate is lower in large part because people are getting pregnant much less often. And so in a sense, we have to think now about the problem of how to get younger Americans off the sidelines and help them start their lives um, and, and see that the, the core goal of uh, social policy is not just to have some peace and quiet, but to allow people to live thriving lives, to build families to build our society over generations. And that requires a different way of thinking about what's, what social policy means and what kinds of problems our country has. Can I, so, can I, you, oh, go ahead, 
Christine. Oh, I was going to quickly ask because you mentioned this isn't just an American problem. And I know in Japan in particular, they've had Hikikomori, you know, this, uh, these young men in particular. So I'm curious how much of what uh, you see, where you see this happening begins in a, in a sense of, I mean, for several generations now, toxic masculinity has been seen as a social problem by certain political coalitions and a sense in which young men in particular, if you look at their education rates, if you look at, at, at their employment rates, are in crisis and have been. And we've ignored that because to acknowledge it is seen by too many groups as, as undermining women's rights. So I wonder how much of this is also linked to a crisis in masculinity and as well as to the opioid crisis, which again, in terms of people's uh, lethargy and unwillingness to kind of live their lives and flourish, uh, numbs them to that pain. Yeah, I think it's very much connected to the latter, to this sense of isolation and loneliness that drives people toward opioids. There's actually a lot less drug use in America on the whole than there was 30 years ago. But what stands out even more is that the drugs that are being used are anti-pain drugs rather than rather than uppers like cocaine that just get you more into life. What you find instead is drugs that offer you relief from life and escape from life. I, I, I would actually say that what you see in the, in the male-female difference is that women are just better at dealing with this kind of problem without their lives falling apart. They're facing it too. They're paying a very high price for the, the, this kind of breakdown of the, of the paths by which people couple up, by which people build families. Um, but for men, that tends to mean just real breakdown. Men, in a sense, depend on women more than women depend on men. And it turns out that this becomes uh, uh, just untenable as a way to live. Whereas for women, it's a source of unhappiness, but not as much a source of breakdown. And when you, if you look at this in economic categories, women are doing better with it than men, much better. But I think the problem they face is a problem that afflicts both. I mean, it's interesting because in a funny way, you're talking about fighting, we're, we're, we're in a weird way, even ideologically, uh, we make fun of or we, we speak slightingly or disgustedly, let's say, about this idea of tos toxic masculinity. But, you know, we know culturally going back, and this is a subject of a piece that uh, Noah wrote for us in the, that's in our, uh, in our December issue about um, uh, this look back at the 1990s by, by liberals and progressives who are now discovering that um, there was a lot of unseemly cultural behavior and there were a lot of unseemly cultural attitudes being expressed that at the time were being defended because they were being attacked by conservatives and Gingrich and Dole and they were therefore defending it. Now they look back and find it disgusting and so do a lot of us and we found it disgusting then, find it disgusting now. And there is something to the toxic masculinity charge going back. That's the Harvey Weinstein charge. That's the Bill Clinton's behavior in the Oval Office charge. That is popular culture from the 60s to the 90s, making light of rape, making, you know, sort of like rape scenes and revenge of the nerds and 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 National Lampoon's Animal House and stuff like that. And 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 sort of, uh, you know, the exploit casual exploitation of women and popular culture and nudity and all that stuff. And there was something to the critique, um, though it was scattershot and too ideological and all that. Right. And now you could use a little more of it. I mean, that's the horrible part about this is you're talking about men absenting themselves from life, going into their homes, living in the basement, watching porn, playing video games, not engaging with 
the world in which when they engaged with it, they were then accused of all these terrible crimes. Now, now even these men find themselves under a certain amount of assault when they've already given up the ghost and aren't even engaging in the behaviors that would lead to any kind of accusation that they were being excessively testosterone driven. You know, I, I think this really comes down to the fact that social order is is a middle ground. It's it's a middle ground between two forms of disorder, one of which looks like total chaos and breakdown in that direction. And the other one looks like death. It looks like nothing happening. And life it ought to be lived in the middle. To say that masculinity can be toxic is to say that it, there's a form of it that can be non-toxic. And that's what we want. We don't want none. We want a form of it that's somehow ordered and organized. And so, yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, we're pushing now against the, the excess of the kind of, of caution and quiet that we were arguing for a little more of 20 years ago and 30 years ago. On the type of breakdown that looks like death, which, I, which I, is mostly what your piece focused on, the, the enervation that we see everywhere, um, I can't help but think, while this is a, a several decade long problem, the pandemic really exacerbated this. Um, yeah. it kept, when I read your piece, I realized it, it captured what I had sort of gleaned walking around the past six months or so, um, but couldn't quite articulate. When everyone says, oh, the city's coming back, it's coming back, it's coming back to life. And I kept thinking, no, it looks more similar to the way it used to look, but what it's not doing is coming back to life. Um, that that was the sort of fundamental difference. And you see things now since the pandemic, this rise in articles, uh, defensive articles about why you why, why it's great not to have kids. And you see things like a movement, an anti work movement um, on the rise. Uh, there's a Reddit group with like a million strong uh, uh, who, who, who talk about, you know, how the whole notion of work needs to be needs the whole apparatus needs to be toppled. And I think part of this, it's not just the pandemic, but everything that happened in 2020, where you had this captive audience locked at home and this messaging coming from political leaders and media and celebrities, this constant barrage of news and of and of analysis saying this country is fundamentally rotten and everything about it is bad. And I think it worked as a kind of hypnotic suggestion on a mass scale. And when you hear that for a year, coast to coast, uh, you emerge from it to the extent we've emerged from the pandemic, much less inclined to be invested in any of this. Um, and there's this, that's this lack of investment now in these things because they're all supposedly fundamentally broken and rotten. I mean, I, I think that's a that's a, a very a very deep analysis. Um, you've all you sort of laid out this Aristotelian mean, right? The notion that we need, yeah, we we need to live uh, in the middle. That there's too much masculinity leads to chaos, decay, violence. Uh, you know, the horrors of the sort of uh, criminal epidemic of uh, from the '60s to the '90s, and too little of it leads to sclerosis and. Uh, depression and general enervation. I, I was struck by, you know, the the word that we the word that is often used is, you know, that we want to live in a society that encourages human flourishing, right? Or, uh, um, and um, I was listening to an interview with Andrea Elliott, the Pulitzer Prize winning reporter, whose book 
who wrote this uh, article about this, um, you know, a girl growing up in a shelter in Brooklyn and the chaos of her family, um, and uh, and has now turned this um, into a book. And I was struck by this. She won a Pulitzer, and she's you know sort of this distinguished reporter. I can't remember. Invisible Child, I think, is the name of the book. And I can't remember her name, uh, the, the the child's name, who is now 19, but she sort of describes how this Dasani, excuse me, Dasani, right, how this kid, uh, not only did she sort of get out of the shelter, I assume with Andrea Elliott's help, but got herself into a private school, a boarding school, the Milton Hershey School in Hershey, Pennsylvania, set up precisely for the purpose of aiding the children of poverty and getting them out of poverty. And she could not escape the lure and the tragedy of her family circumstances where because she was not there, a couple of her siblings go into foster care. She has to leave the Hershey school, come home, and her own future is basically damaged, if not destroyed, by the continuing pathologies of her own life. Okay, so this is the subject of the book. But Andrea Elliott, in this interview on the NewsHour, says, look, you know, we lay out this whole thing in American society about how... What we want is to provide people with opportunity. And if they get opportunity, then as long as we provide them with opportunity and they can sort of move on, that's that's what we need to do. That's the best that we should do for people is provide them with opportunity. But for so many people, for so many people, they can't take advantage of opportunities when they come for other reasons, or they're just not even offered the opportunities. Or if they're offered the opportunities, they come at too high a cost, blah, 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 blah. And I was, I, was, I was struck by this because she tells this story that could be told, and Naomi Riley reviews the book and commentary this month and goes into this a little bit, but she goes into this detail about how there was a path for salvation for this child, Dasani, and the path was costly. As paths out of lives of unfortunate circumstances often are, that's the subject of great expectations, you know, Pip gets uh, elevated from his station at the cost of feeling embarrassment, shame, and loathing of the great soul, poor man, his stepfather, who basically made him a good person, even though he was a person of no means, right? This is the subject of my father's book, Making It. One of the longest journeys in the world is the journey from Brooklyn to Manhattan, meaning in order to become a person of, you know, distinguished nature in your society, you may have to betray the place you came from. That's the cost. That's the brutal bargain. That is the story of civilization. But what we are told is that that story, that path, that complex moral frame is bad, and we shouldn't give into it because it means that we end up in a circumstance in which people people's lives end up with unequal outcomes. And what we need to do is prevent unequal outcomes. And we do that. It's not clear how exactly we are supposed to make sure that Dasani's life is better, except basically to make her a permanent ward of the state and provided with a life by the state, because obviously her parents and her family can't, can't, can't do so. And that's the mindset that we are facing, not just the problem of our social decay, but I think the problem that we have no consensus on what it means to live a good life, which I think we once did, which is you live a good life by 
being a responsible adult, supporting yourself, supporting your family and making a life that you can be proud of as opposed to simply a life in which you just are living to sustain yourself from one meal to the next. You know, I think there there would still be a lot more agreement about that basic ideal than you might imagine from our politics. I mean, there, there are there are loud voices speaking out against it now in a way that might not have been all that common. But I think the notion that some mix of uh, of 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 order and dynamism, of a willingness to to make a change um, and an ability to be grounded and to build a family and to be part of a community that that's how people thrive is still a very widely held view. And it is, as you say, a kind of Aristotelian me. I mean, I, you know, paraphrasing Aristotle is my only marketable skill. And so I, 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 I'm just going to repeat myself and repeat you. But I think that that is actually more widely shared than our elite conversations would suggest, that that is still an ideal that speaks to a lot of people in our country. And can I can I just add Dasani leaving that school was because she repeatedly assaulted other students physically and she was given a chance to kind of, you know, she was told if you do this again and the boundaries of that school, the reason the kids who do go there and thrive and get out of poverty is because they're so strict. They enforce those rules. They live in houses with sort of parent figures who try to keep them on the right path. And she it was a choice she made. She knew the consequences. She understood it. And she left. She missed her family. You know, there was a there's a lot of judgmentalism in the in the in the reporting on this about why the family was kept away from her. Um, and so she went back. And I think the reporter in particular didn't want to judge her behavior because she felt overall that this girl had been dealt a really rough hand in life, which she clearly had. But I think it's the lack of ability uh, for the elites in society to say, you know, behavior that we would punish our own children for because we knew it would set them on the wrong path. If we didn't, we cannot judge other people for because that would be wrong because we are privileged and they are not. And I think that actually gets them into a lot of moral contortions rather than just saying what we're saying here, which is, look, you know, this is tough. You're going to make bad choices. You hope that society and your community will help steer you back in the right direction when when you do. So uh, let me just uh, pull back and talk to you guys a little bit about our sponsors, X-Chair and Bolin Branch. So the X-Chair, this is a very tense making conversation, but if you sit down in your X-Chair, you can get yourself a massage to to ease ease the strain that you have placed your own body in listening to us. Uh, If you're cold, it can heat you up. If you're warm, it can cool you down. That's the patented LMX massage and temperature regulation exclusively designed and made for X-Chair. And once you feel the customized support of X-Chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar or DVL, your back will never be happy in any other chair again. So that's high performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort, all reasons to love the X-Chair. So try it for yourself risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair could be, you'll never go back. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. xchaircommentary.com. And now we should talk about our friends at Bowen Branch, uh, the maker of those buttery sheets, pure, orga- pure organic cotton that make a truly special gift as we head into as we head into the Christmas season. And today is the day 
as of today, you can get 20% off, but only today, Wednesday, the 17th, 20% off your order with promo code commentary at bowlandbranch.com. Those sheets, um, uh, you know, pure organic cotton, uh, blankets, pillows, throws, beautiful holiday packaging. Um, the husband and wife team, Scott and Missy Tannen, founded Bowling Branch to create a new standard in bedding by doing things the right way, not the easy way. Signature hem sheets are their all-time bestseller. They get softer with every single wash, buttery, soft, lightweight, and made with 100% organic cotton weave. Comes in a wide range of colors and sizes from Twin Up to California King, completely toxin-free, fair trade certified. So treat yourself and your loved ones to the new standard in bedding from Bowl and Branch. These gifts come wrapped and ready in their special holiday packaging. If you order by December 19th, you have guaranteed delivery by Christmas. And remember, today, 20% off your order through today, promo code commentary at bowlandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code commentary. See site for details. Exclusions may apply. So, um, Yuval, uh, as somebody who has both uh, an intellectual frame and a political frame, and we were talking about, uh, let us talk about the intellectual, quickly about the intellectual frame of what's left uh, in the uh, Biden administration's approach on the Build Back Better bill. What is, if you were them and you had, if you were they and you had to make an argument that the bill was uh, a necessary adjunct to human flourishing in the United States, given all of our problems. Is there an argument that you could make based on what you know of the bill? I mean, look, I think the only way to speak for the bill is to say that it's a laundry list of things that need to be in the laundry. I mean, there is no coherent organizing principle for the bill now. It's just the shape of the Democratic coalition. A few things have been taken off because they couldn't make it through the Senate process or because uh, Joe Manchin didn't like them in particular. But what's left doesn't really cohere. I, I think the Democrats would have an opportunity here if they wanted to, to say, we're just going to take on a few cost of living issues. And they do it in their way, which I think is the wrong way, which is subsidizing demand, which doesn't actually reduce cost of living. But you know, if they just wanted to spend money on childcare uh, and, and make that a focus and say, we're going to reduce families' cost of living, you can imagine a pretty big bill that would appeal to a sense of people's sense of what's wrong now. Th this is not that. Um, and it's, it's such a bizarre mix of things between the amount of money that it spends on, uh, on environmental things, on frankly making it more difficult for middle-class families to afford daycare by putting all these rules on what can count as daycare, you add to that the, 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 the place they've landed on SALT, which is you know, the state and local tax deduction, where they're just giving money to wealthy Democrats. Um, and it's very hard to make an argument for this bill that isn't what they're doing, which is frankly saying we need this bill without explaining what it is or why it should interest anybody. Well, they do talk about how much it costs. I mean, that's the primary selling point how much they're going to spend. Yeah. Uh, which is also probably a lot of the reason why the public isn't sold on it. <laughs> I, I don't know why they haven't yeah. made the disconnect. When, when you talk about how much the thing costs, people are going to treat it like a bill. Yeah. It's not the best way to sell something is to say this costs a lot of money. You'll love this. Well, I mean, except for their own base, which is the, the, their own base is disappointing because the price tag went down. The number went down, which you should yep. would say if you're if the bargain is you're a taxpayer on the one side and you're like somebody who wants government largesse on the other, 
the bargain would be, you know, it's really great. Originally, they wanted three and a half trillion. We got, look, we got it down to a trillion seven. It's cut in half. It's a bargain. You know, I love the way you buy a car. Let's just, let's make a deal today. This right? is all premature ahead of the CBO analysis, which is going right, to well, went all the way back up. Yeah. Well, okay. So that's the other uh, interesting thing is there was a story uh, today, uh, I guess Reuters did, where they went out and they found three people, uh, you know, Wall Street analysts and, you know, people like that, including, of course, the inevitable Mark Zandi, the guy you always go to when you want some somebody to say something favorable about Democratic. Everything's uh, fine. Everything's great. Right. (laughs) Anyway, Mark Zandi has been around for like 20 years. He's like the John Zogby of, 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 of economics. He says what you want him to say. But I mean, basically what they say in this piece that is going to be retailed for the next two weeks as a counter CBO or a counter official, you know, sort of like the official gatekeepers who score the costs of things is it's not really inflation. It's, uh, you know what? I mean, it's, you know, the, the amount of money is spread out over so much time. It's not really going to be all that inflationary or contribute that much to the deficit. I mean, I guess over time, it'll contribute a lot to the deficit. And 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 it might be inflationary if it were a little bigger, but maybe it's not going to be that inflationary, which is, I would not say, really a great selling point. Like, you I mean, want to say it's going to defeat inflation and it's going to create economic growth, and you're going to all get a, a free refrigerator, and you know, you know, and and as Charles Fourier would say, the, the oceans will turn to lemonade if you pass this bill. Like they, they got nothing to sell it except the entropic need to pass legislation. Well, I mean, they are they're pitching it as counterinflationary, and, and Ron Klain can't hit retweet enough on this piece because of childcare. I mean, this is the what. Um, Pete Buttigieg was retailing the other day that, you know, childcare is going to induce people to get back into the workforce. Not only is that insane, in part because you're talking about, A, injecting a lot of capital into the economy, which is inflationary, and B, freeing up a lot of American savings to spend on too few consumer goods, which is inflationary. All of this is is, is maddening for people. I mean, it, it, elementary economic competence should lead you to say, well, that doesn't make any sense. But uh, beyond that, just the notion here that they can't reconcile with what we already learned last week, which is that the labor force participation rate is down precipitously in part because so many people retired. 3.4 million people left the workforce for permanent retirement. How childcare is going to lure these people back into the workforce. No one's reconciling because they can't reconcile it. Yeah. And even on childcare, I mean, their approach here is what the Democrats approaches on healthcare and on housing on higher ed, it's to subsidize the demand and restrict the supply. And one right. thing that does is raise to the cost. I mean, that really is just elementary economics. And sometimes there's an argument for doing that kind of thing. You can make a case for the Democrats' approach on healthcare. I think it doesn't work ultimately, but there's no argument for doing this with childcare. I heard that the other day is that um, from the mint the coin types that we have to keep subsidizing demand because you, you can't have demand fall through the floor. Otherwise, then the supply will follow follow that. But we have a supply problem, right? Uh, anyway, it's a very it's a very interesting political moment because it does seem like um, it's not that the soothsayer is leaning into Biden's ear saying, you know, Caesar, thou art mortal. It's more like soothsayer saying everything is going to be much worse pretty soon than it is now you think it's bad now it's going to get so much worse 
You can't even believe how much worse it's going to get for you. Listen to me while I'm, I'm giving you everything you need to know to know that you've got to shift gears. And as I, I said the other day on the podcast, um, after 1994, granted there was an election, but you could look at this Virginia, New Jersey election as the, as the contemporary faster world is moving faster version of the 1994 election. Bill Clinton looked at the order of battle and said, if I don't shift gears radically, or at least appear to shift gears radically, what happened to the Congress is going to happen to me. And uh, he was, you know, 46 years old. So um, it was but, a lot easier for him to shift gears than it is for Biden. But but see, at this point, I don't think we can any longer. I mean, we all mock the come on man uh, claim, but actually, I think it perfectly encapsulates that for the Biden administration and for Joe Biden as an individual, denial is a choice. He is making a choice to kind of brush aside what's put right in front of him. And there are political consequences for that. So it's no longer just that, you know, he's trying to he has some focused plan that he's pursuing and he's not letting any of these distractions bother him. It's come on, man. You've told me something I don't want to hear. Come on, man. I'm not going to deal with that. Let's get back to what I want to deal with. And he'll pay the price ultimately. And so will his party. I mean, I'll give you one more example. Uh, and I think you you were there when this happened. But the 2006 election happens. And again, the Republicans have their midterm election, Republicans have their hat handed to them largely as a result of uh, public reckoning on Iraq, uh, I think, and that how badly Iraq was going. And Bush, who was not even going to be on the ticket in 2008, Bush, who had committed himself to the strategy and was very ornery about going on with it. You know, there were going to be elections, three elections, and and, yeah, yeah. and then there was this Sunni-Shia civil war going on and this horrible, horrific death toll and everything. And then these guys who would eventually be uh, Yuval's colleagues or fellow American Enterprise Institute people, this guy Jack Keane and, uh, and this guy Fred Kagan, they were like, you know, there's a new strategy we could try in Iraq. There's a new way. Maybe we can try a new strategy in Iraq. And because the message was so clear from the 2006 election that Bush, who had really committed himself to this other strategy, said, all right, you know what? Let's go for it. We're going to go for the surge. It's not going to be popular. People are going to yell at me. No one on the Hill really wants this. Republicans don't really want this. But we're going to try it because, look, we've committed blood and treasure, number one. And number two, like, I'm not just going to sit here and let my, you know, everything be destroyed. And they did it and they shifted gears radically and had this wild triumph, though people don't remember it as being the wild triumph that it was, but it was. And again, it's not like presidencies can't shift gears. They really can. Democrat, Republican, under terrible circumstances, under less bad circumstances. That's what it means to be a fleet footed politician. And to have your, you know, and, and even when you've like put your fingers in your ears and saying, la, 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 I don't want to hear what's going on. You know, there are these empirical results of, 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 of you know, mass numbers of people telling you, no, you're going, you're going the wrong way. And I know he's 78 years old, but I still just find it amazing that he's not going to, they're not I- going to do something. I think we should not underestimate the power of the echo chamber that now exists around politicians. Both parties, if you think about the last five years, each party lost a winnable election 
a close one, and decided to ignore that. The Democrats decided the answer must be in misinformation on Facebook or the Russians are doing something. Republicans decided it didn't even happen. There was fraud and we didn't actually lose. Rather than say, why does the public not like us? And how could we change that? They both responded by saying, what's wrong with the information environment? And, and how can we fix it? That's where a lot of politicians are now. They do not want to take the, 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 the they do not want to take lost elections to mean that something about them needs to change. And there's a cost for that. There's no way around it. Yuval, thank you so much for being with us. I'm calling you Yuval because, as I say, in about six months, everybody in America is just going to be saying Yuval. And you're going to like have to re-record your early albums and so you get the masters and everything. It's just it's crazy. And uh, that's also true of Noah, uh, Christine, and Abe, for whom I, John Podhoritz, say keep the candle burning.